0: We turn to the book of Colossians and the second chapter. You know, in the early days of my ministry, I thought it was quite wrong to read the same passage morning and evening. But fortunately, with age has come a little bit of wisdom. So we read again from Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, I'm going to read from the first verse down to verse 10. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone should cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the to the tradition of men according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Now, we looked this morning at the opening verses of that chapter. Tonight, we want to focus our attention on verses 8 to 10. Verses 8 to 10 of Colossians chapter 2. Now, it is quite clear, it's evident, that the heretical teachers that were going around in Colossae were a real threat to the confidence and stability of the believers there. That's why Paul takes so much effort, makes so much effort uh, to try and correct these things and expose these things for them. So Paul, having stated the positive in verses 6 and 7, where he says, As you have therefore received Christ, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and so on. He now reinforces that message. That's the positive aspect. Now in verses 8 to 10, he focuses attention upon the negative. He doesn't want the believers to be moved from their absolute assurance in the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that the purpose of Colossians is to direct the attention of the believers to Christ. And so Paul mentions over and over again the sufficiency of Christ. He makes it clear in these verses that there is a tremendous contrast between the pure doctrine of Christ revealed from heaven and the spurious human wisdom ...of these false teachers. There is an absolutely staggering contradiction... ...in these verses. On the one hand... ...there is the power and the wisdom of men... ...and on the other hand... ...there is the glory and the majesty... ...of the incarnate Son of God. It's as though Paul is saying... ...compare these. Compare the wisdom of man... ...with the wisdom of God... Compare what these teachers can teach you with what Christ teaches you in the word. So let's have a look at what he says here. First of all, in verse 8, we see the danger of man-made philosophy. The danger of man-made philosophy. Now when Paul warns the believers not to be taken captive... By philosophy and empty deception, he was not suggesting for one moment that it was wrong to be a diligent student. He's not saying it's wrong even to study philosophy. He's not condemning as such the traditions or the learning of men. We sometimes, I think, have a wrong view of what philosophy is all about. Philosophy has been described as acquaintance with divine and human things. Acquaintance with divine and human things. If that's true, we should all be students of philosophy. We should all be philosophers because we want to study the things of God and the things of men. It can be a wonderful means of understanding ourselves and our nature, as well as the world that God has made. If it is an acquaintance with divine and human things, we want to be more acquainted with what we are, We want to be more acquainted so that we can avoid the dangers that come. We want to be more acquainted with our frailty, our weaknesses, and our strengths. We want to be more acquainted with God, who he is, his majesty, his glory. We want to be more acquainted with Christ. So we should be studying these things We should be studying the world that God has made and the God who made the world. After all, doesn't the scripture say to us, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork? So if the heavens declare the glory of God, we should therefore want to study it. We should want to know more and more about what God has made. But Paul's warning must be seen in the context of the the heretical teaching of the Gnostics, who elevated human wisdom above the revealed word of God. What he was doing was to warn them about substituting the theories and the notions of men and the attempts of men to reach up to heaven by their own effort against the glorious gospel of Christ. Now, Paul knew that in the church in Colossae, there were not only these Colossian heretics who wanted to impose certain things on them, he knew there were also these Judaizers who wanted to add a lot of Jewish tradition uh, to the Christians. You see what they were doing, they were making salvation to be partly by faith and partly by works. And we are not strangers to this kind of of teaching. In the Jewish environment, many things had been added to the written law given on Sinai, and indeed had become inseparable from the law itself you know how many laws the Pharisees had they had 613 the law of God was 10 God gave 10 commandments but the Pharisees and the Jewish authorities added these extra laws 613 365 were negative negative and 248 were positive. So much so that these extra laws and the justification that the Pharisees had was trying to think of it pictorially. Here in the center, you've got God's law. Now, we don't want anybody to break God's law, so to prevent people getting close to God's law to break it, we put a fence around the law. And the fence around the law were these 613 regulations that they had. But over time, these 613 laws became more important than the 10 laws that God had given on Sinai. Think about, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you, you shall labor and do all your work. The seventh is the Sabbath to the Lord. In it you should do no work and so on. Now, the Pharisees decided that this was not sufficient. There were countless other provisions concerning the observance of the Sabbath. The most common one that we know about is what's called a Sabbath day's journey. A Sabbath day's journey was two-thirds of a mile. Two-thirds of a mile. So, you could go from your house two-thirds of a mile on the Sabbath day. No more. Supposedly. But they decided that if you went two thirds of a mile and you needed to go further on the Sabbath day, then if you went two thirds of a mile from your house and you left there some provisions, that became your temporary home. So you could walk from your real home to your temporary home two thirds of a mile and then go two-thirds of a mile further on, and so on. And you can see how you could do that infinitely. There were also many of the Jews who, instead of calling their house their home, they called their town or their village their home. So they could go two-thirds of a mile outside the walls of the city. But because the whole city was their home, they could go as far as they liked within the city. These kind of ridiculous laws. Now, I don't know if any of you, um, you're probably not vain like me, but I'm not sure that... I wonder how many of you, before you came out tonight, looked in the mirror just to make sure that everything was neat and tidy. Well, according to the Pharisees, it consisted as Sabbath-breaking to look at a mirror on the wall on the Sabbath day. It was also against the law to light a candle on the Sabbath day. That's what they said. However... These regulations that they had permitted that an egg laid on the Sabbath day could not be sold or eaten, but it could be sold to a Gentile, but it couldn't be sold to a Jew. And the regulations also allowed for a Gentile to light the candle for you. These are the kind of rules and regulations that Jesus was speaking about in Matthew chapter 23. He says that these laws, these regulations, had become more important than what Jesus called the weightier matters of the law. But you know... That wasn't just the situation in the time of Jesus and amongst the Pharisees. It's very true of much of professing Christianity down through the ages. One commentator puts it like this. One of the most subtle and damning errors of our day and hour Is that men who profess to be religious leaders and representatives of the gospel refuse to permit the gospel to have the final word. They are forever adding their own interpretation. And isn't that true? Now we can we can look at church leaders who say that they can find in the Bible where it does not condemn abortion. They can find scriptural references to say that that homosexuality is uh, permissible according to the Bible. You'll hear them on different programs. But it's not only that. In evangelical churches, how often do we hear people say, this is right and this is wrong. It's wrong to come to church wearing jeans, isn't it? No, but some people think it is. There are some denominations that would say that it was wrong for women to wear makeup. Now, I'm not commenting one way or another on these things. But I'm saying that these are rules and regulations that do not come from the Bible. And people judge other people by conformity or non-conformity to these man-made rules. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying that we must be aware of man-made philosophy or man-made rules and regulations. Our guiding light is the word of God. Paul condemns these practices and he says that they were according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. We must beware of anything that goes beyond the teaching of the word of God. Now you've noticed, I'm sure, that even though it's quite warm this evening, I continue to wear a jacket and a tie. Now you may think that's foolish, and it probably is. But it has been my practice, even when we lived in Peru, and it was very hot and very humid, I continued to preach wearing a suit, a tie, and a jacket. Now, you may think I'm stupid, and probably you're right. But that is something for me. But when I was preaching in Peru, the congregation were wearing shorts and T-shirts. Now, it was not my place to say You should not come to church unless you're dressed like me, properly. Not at all. When we begin to impose other things that are not biblical on God's people, then we're doing what Paul condemns here. Beware lest anyone should cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. The second thing we see here in verse 9 is the declaration of the person of Christ in verse 9. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In contrast to this man-made delusion, the Apostle Paul points again to Christ and shows that completeness comes only in him. And the statement that Paul makes is truly staggering. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. This is a a phrase and a verse that somehow just trips off our tongue. We've heard it so many times, we know it so well, and yet I wonder do we really fully appreciate what it means. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I think perhaps that this is not a verse that should be looked at in the context of, in a a part of one sermon. This is a verse that demands a month's preaching. There's so much in it. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We sometimes don't consider just how amazing this statement really is. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying that in Jesus is found all the attributes of the sovereign God. Not some, not a part, but all. Think about the attributes of God. We can think about his holiness. We can think of his immensity. We can think of all sorts of the attributes of God. And all these attributes of God are seen in Christ, are seen in Jesus. In him dwells all the, not the partiality, but the fullness of the Godhead. The fullness of God, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Godhead reside in Christ. In him there is everything. You see, Paul was talking to these believers who were troubled by these Gnostics, who were telling them, yes, having Christ is all right, but we can show you something more. We can show you something better. We can can direct you in a way so that you'll know more of, uh, of God. How foolish. How foolish to suggest that anything can be added to the Godhead. Can we add anything to God? Can we add anything to the Holy Spirit? Then we can add nothing to Christ. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead. All divine power, all wisdom, all holiness, all beauty, all righteousness is found in him. But in Jesus, the fullness of the Godhead was seen. There were those in Colossae who refused to believe in the reality of the God man. This was a heresy that took place in the early early years of the church. Some people believed that Christ was God, but wasn't really man. He just had the appearance of a man, but he wasn't really man. There were others who said that he was a man and a very godly man, but he wasn't God. They refused to believe in the two natures in one being. But in Jesus, the fullness of the Godhead was seen. Now stop and think about that for a moment. This was a man who walked the streets of Palestine. This was a child and a young man who was subject to his earthly parents. He obeyed them. This was someone who went about doing good. This is the one who was mocked and abused and yet in him what they saw in him. But because their eyes were blinded by the evil one, they could not see that the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him. He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was born as we are all born, in exactly the same way. We must never fall into the trap of saying that his birth was supernatural. It wasn't. His birth was normal, just like ours. It was his conception that was supernatural. He grew and developed as all of us do. And although his full glory was veiled, they they saw him as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He healed the sick, raised the dead, stilled the storm, cast out demons, and went about doing good. And Jesus himself said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How could they be so blind? How could they be so blind as to cry out, crucify him, crucify him? How could they have been so blind as to mock and to curse him? But of course, if we'd been there, we wouldn't have been like that, would we? Would we not? Every one of us in our own natural state, would have been exactly the same. We would have been there in the crowd. We would have said, crucify him. We would have seen this beaten and bedraggled figure with a crown of thorns on his head. We would have seen him as they did. Not as one in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in bodily form, because like them, our eyes would have been blinded. Jesus, In Jesus is found all the attributes of the sovereign God. And in Jesus, the fullness of the Godhead was seen. But there's something else. In Jesus, the fullness of the Godhead is presently available for all those who believe. He was not just the fullness of the Godhead in eternity. He was the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form during his time on earth. And he continues to be the fullness of the Godhead when he ascended into heaven. And he continues to be the fullness of the Godhead as he makes intercession for his people. He has not changed. Although he left the glory of heaven to come to this earth, he has not changed. He was the fullness of the Godhead. He, he is the fullness of the Godhead, and he will be the fullness of the Godhead when he returns again in bodily form. And you see, Paul is doing this so that the eyes of the Colossian Christians will be turned away from these fanciful ideas of those who wanted to lead them astray. He wanted to turn their eyes to Christ. There's a chorus that I used to sing just after I was converted. Turn your eyes upon Jesus look full in his wonderful face. And that's exactly what Paul is wanting the believers in Colossae to do, to turn their eyes to Jesus, turn their thoughts away from the philosophical intricacies presented to them by these Gnostics and focus their full attention on on Christ and lose themselves in the glory of his person and his work. Once again, Paul was seeking to demonstrate to the Colossian Christians how foolish these false teachers really were in seeking to add strange rituals and passwords to the finished work of Christ. Perhaps he was asking for the Colossian Christians to say, why? Why? If in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, why do you want us to add these extra things to it? It is no less foolish for people today to suggest that the work of Christ on the cross can only be effective in the life of a man or woman when they of their own free will decide to accept it. The truth is, as we have seen in Psalm 110, that God makes rebellious men and women willing in the day of his power. What Paul is saying is, Christ is everything. Nothing needs to be added, nothing can be added In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And then in verse 10, we have the delight of being in Christ. And you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. And the believer can be complete in Jesus Christ, because in Christ There is the fullness of the Godhead. All the power, all the wisdom, all the understanding that are eternally present in God are present in the form of Jesus Christ. If the believer is in Christ, he thus has available to him all that is necessary you see the point in Christ dwells all the fullness of the body uh, of the godhead in bodily form believers are in Christ so they share that they share what Christ has he is the fullness of the godhead if we are in Christ then that fullness is available to us. His power, his wisdom, his understanding, his glory. There is nothing lacking. And therefore the believer is complete. By that we don't mean that he's as holy as he's ever going to be. Because it's not until we see Christ in glory that we shall be complete in that sense. But complete in the sense that everything necessary for his salvation, for his growth in grace, and for his likeness to Christ is found in Christ. You see, the Gnostics wanted to add their rituals and passwords and magical incantations to Christ, But Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 1.30, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So the believer has the wisdom of Christ, the sanctification of Christ, the redemption through Christ. There is nothing lacking in Christ and therefore there is nothing lacking for the one who is in Christ. And that's what Paul wanted to get over to these Colossian Christians. These heretics, they're telling you you need something else. You don't. All you need is Christ because in Christ dwells the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. One commentator puts it in this way. Every need, no matter how great or how small, is met in Christ. What God demands, he has provided in the finished work of the son of his love. Do we need strengthening? It's there in Christ. Do we need forgiveness? It's there in Christ. Whatever we need, we find in him and in him alone. And the fullness of that provision is seen in the final part of verse 10. For Christ is the head of all principality and power. In contrast to the Gnostic heretics, Paul is saying, there is nothing higher than Christ. There is nothing superior to Christ. Not angels, not demons, not spirits, nothing. Nothing is superior to Christ. He is above all. Therefore, whatever the believer needs can be fully and completely met in him. And so Paul says to them, And he says to us, you are complete in him. You are complete in him. Not because of what you are, but because of what Christ is. Because in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. And you are in Christ. Amen.